This episode is sponsored by ZocDoc, a free app that shows you doctors who are patient reviews, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP. This is pretty much pop, a culture podcast pushing that boulder farther up the hill with each episode. And I'm, I'm quite sure nothing will happen to reverse our progress. Today, we're talking about the Hugo Award winning video game Hades, as well as its genre, the roguelike genre of games. This is Mark Lintemeyer, and I beat Hades on 20 heat with both the bow and the spear. I am Tyler Hislop. I'm the editor, and I almost beat Hades before coming onto this podcast and just barely did not make it. My name's Al Baker. I'm speaking from Leeds in the UK, and I still haven't beaten Hades. But, you know, I've come really close twice. Hey, I'm Jamie Madigan from psychologyofgames.com, where I talk and podcast about the overlap between psychology and video games. I've sort of beaten Hades. I haven't gotten, like, the true ending yet, but I've at least won that boss fight and seen what's immediately after it. And we will save the spoilers until the latter part of the episode, but a general overview of the plot of Hades, that you are the the god son of Hades and you're trying to break out of the underworld. And so all of his minions are fighting. So it just becomes a normal arcade game. As you beat a particular board, then one of the other Olympians will have a gift. And so that'll be something that will be a bonus for you in improving your weapons, improving your ability to dodge or whatever. I was very curious about the roguelike genre generally. So in prepping for this, since I had played way too much Hades, mostly last year, but then I kind of picked it up again. There is a reason why it is uh, winning awards, not just for its strangely winning a Hugo for its script, but just its sheer playability, its sheer adrenaline and flow. But then you all were good enough to recommend other things in this area. So I've been exploring other things over the last few weeks. Jamie, you, were, you I think, had suggested after we had you on last to talk in general about the psychology of video games that we do something specifically on this at the time. My co-hosts, Eric and Brian, had not subjected themselves to it. But now that I have a more flexible format, then I can indulge and try to make something back from the many hours I have poured into this. What is wonderful and unique about this game? The main thing that sets it apart from all the others in this category is just how well-made and well-crafted it is. How good the story and how good the narration and the voice work, which is even more surprising since I think a lot of the voice work was done like by people in-house at Supergiant in addition to some other people that they brought in. But just the amount of polish in the game, I think, is one of the things that makes it like, yeah, if you got to check out something in the roguelike genre, that this should be where you start. Actually, that might be kind of a bad place to start because there's not much better, (laughs) I think, out there. And a lot of the other ones might be a letdown after this. So I don't know, maybe start with something terrible so that you have the contrast effect at work. And this seems even better by comparison. Al, do you want to? What's your history with this genre and with this game? How does this fit into your world? I mean, my history with roguelikes is basically FTL and a few of the other games, which I, in researching for this podcast, I didn't really realize were roguelikes, but uh, turned out to be like Deepest Dungeon is one which cropped up. I played Slay the Spire a lot recently, and I didn't really plot that as a roguelike. I thought of it as a card game, but clearly it is. Hades, I, I avoided for a really long time because it has a feature of video games which I really generally dislike, which is a need for decent reaction time. And just any kind of real-time combat generally just like puts my old man nerves way too on edge. 
but I was shopping on the Switch store and saw it and remembered all the rave reviews about it and gave it a go. And it was, I was really impressed by how forgiving is the wrong word, but I've never played a real time combat game like that before, which was so much fun to suck at. Tyler, you were excited about this as a genre. Can you, you want to orient us? What is rogue and how is this a roguelike? It's a pretty tricky question to answer concisely because of all of the varieties of mechanics that have bolted themselves on to this rogue name since the beginning. I mean, really, Rogue started in 1980. I think it was a an ASCII graphics game, procedurally generated dungeon with RPG mechanics and things of that nature. And this this kind of launched this new style of gaming where you have the permanent death or permadeath which makes the stakes of each uh, decision greater or higher for the player and often increases the difficulty level. To go back a bit, rogue and roguelikes tend to have certain things in common. They're at base, things like randomly generated maps or procedurally generated maps or dungeons, and this permadeath mechanic that when you die, you're returned to the beginning, whatever that beginning is, the game, whatever game you're playing will choose, the reset mechanic, as it were, and old style arcade style donkey kong other games like that where you die and without continues you're effectively returned to the beginning of the game there may not be the procedural element and similar capacity but that ruthless uh nature where if you die you're done you start over so those things uh, have become the kind of mainstay foundational mechanics for a wider array of games that have started to come out we're talking about hades the thing that makes it roguelike is the procedural the randomly generated dungeons more or less even though a lot of the rooms carry similar characteristics and then the the randomness of the loot uh and the fact that when you die you're returned to start the dungeon again what makes it different than traditional roguelike or rogue in general is that when you do return from death you can use things you've collected in the dungeon for example to improve your character and that will henceforth improve your chances or likelihood to succeed in the dungeon what make rogue and traditional roguelikes interesting in comparison, I think, is that whereas in roguelikes, you're able to uh, improve your character. In rogue and traditional roguelikes, really what's improving is your skill at the game. So your ability to master the game mechanics. So you have those two things kind of working in tandem. Right. Your knowledge, the binding of Isaac is one that was, in fact, higher than Hades on this at least IGN list of best roguelikes. So I played that and it is, it is similarly an arcade game. There's a little bit of unlocking of different characters as you go through and more things that you will encounter in the dungeon as you play the game more over time. But mostly it's just like that all the items are totally unexplained other than it's just a run around and shoot stuff. It is a trial and error or realistically pull up a wiki page to see what all these items do because you realize that it is trying out an item might be you get an item and you can only use it once every 10 screens or five screens or something. And so it's kind of a high cost to try out an item or it'll be a random thing that you just use once. And then so you could, in fact, use it multiple times and still not know what it does. So I found that frustrating enough. As an aside, real quick, to further the the categorization complexity or the confusion, you could call that a roguelike. Because I don't believe that there are progression mechanics in between runs aside from getting different characters. And there are other games, which they would call rogue lights, 
And Binding of Isaac would be maybe an action roguelike. And there are deck builder roguelikes and platformer roguelikes and roguelike vanias and things of that nature, all these different ways to categorize. But the bullet hell, shoot em up, that's inherently different from the original rogue gameplay, but it still has those core elements um, that you're forced to reconcile the randomness and the permanent death. So, and I think Isaac, I mean, Isaac is one of those that probably helped continue, continually launch this genre of games. It became really popular right away. Yeah, it was 2012 or something, I think. Was the first. Yeah, and it was huge. And there are many games like that that I've played as well. Hero Siege and Enter the Gungeon and Overture. There are a lot of games like that where high intensity shoot them up um, with that permanent death thing at the end. I think Binding of Isaac is a super interesting example, in the, particularly as regards to the weird knots that people tie themselves into, which Tyler just really eloquently like talked us through. How to distinguish roguelikes from roguelites. And I'm still not convinced that it's a remotely important distinction to make. But the reason I think Binding of Isaac is, is an interesting example to hop back to is because I remember the Furore when that game came out and it was all about how hard it was. And I feel like a lot of the time when people are insisting on the difference between roguelikes and roguelites, the thing that they're really trying to say is that like, no, I don't want to call something a roguelike unless it's really, really hard and completely unforgiving. And the only thing that, and the game itself doesn't give you any way of getting better or making the next run more likely to succeed than the last. It's all down to your own skill. And I'm interested in knowing what you guys think about that, how important that distinction is. Because to me, it kind of, it seems like the defining feature of the roguelike genre is this run-based gameplay. Rather than a traditional arcade game where you had to play like the same 20 screens over and over again because that was just the only way to engage with that kind of game. The roguelike seems to be an attempt to gamify that necessity and try and give the player something additional for replaying this, get some additional value for replaying it over and over again. And Binding of Isaac seems to do that just by making the game maybe unnecessarily complicated and difficult. Whereas Hades is, I think, a development of the genre in that it really it does an incredibly good job of narrativizing that necessity. So you have a really strong narrative reason for understanding why you're doing this and throwing yourself at this challenge again and again and again. Yeah, I think it's it's run-based is the real, it seems to be the main, like if you had to pick one characteristic of, of rogues and roguelike, it's that it's run-based and you go back to the beginning, whether or not you take anything with you, it seems to be the characteristic. But in the end, like the logic and the rules around classifying these kinds of things into these genres gets pretty fuzzy pretty quickly. You know, and it's kind of like trying to figure out, well, what's a vegetable? You know, well, it's vegetable if it doesn't have a stem. Well, then what about green peppers? No, okay. It's vegetable if it, if it has this kind of flesh. Like, well, what about tomatoes? Uh, well, okay. Now it's a vegetable if it has no, the stem or no stem. And, you know, and like, you know, a vegetable pretty much when you see it and you can distinguish it from a, a fruit or some other kind of plant, like a grain or whatever. And our brains are, kind of wired that way to apply fuzzy logic in that way where we have these almost invisible, I mean, this is how like machine deep learning works, right? Like we have these invisible categorization rules that we don't necessarily think about, but I can look at something and be like, yeah, that's a roguelike or that's close enough to be a roguelike or a bell pepper, depending on <laughs> what it is. In learning about this genre, which is, I think a, my son was talking about it a couple of years ago, and I feel like it's a new way that I had gotten into the, if I'm going to play a game, it's going to be sort of a, a Skyrim RPG long-term engagement. 
where you're slowly exploring the world and exploring the plot and taking more time than the developers put into creating the plot because you're doing repetitive tasks like going back and forth and selling items and upping your stats and looking at the skill tree and things like so whereas an arcade game maybe i you know i could get sucked into it for one evening or two evenings but would not develop sort of a long-term relationship or addiction to it so actually combining what is really just a good arcade game with enough constant novelty in the dialogue, you know, variations in styles of play, just that there are five different weapons, each of which has four different aspects and things that you find early on that just completely change. It's pretty much still dash, attack, dash, attack, dash, attack. It's more or less, but there's enough variation in the styles of play that you can feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I've gotten very good at the bow, but I just can't do the sword with crap or, you know, there's always something new to spend time on and build that skill. So this has just raised the bar for me, as you're saying, Jamie, like I don't want to bother to play another arcade game. Like it, it has that core adrenaline pumping mechanic and gets you into it pretty quickly. That's why a lot of, reason I like first person shooters, but a lot of first person shooters, if you get a new game, you walk through a bunch of cut scenes and like it's, <laughs> I want to get immediately to shooting and killing things. That is like a way to turn my brain off. That is what arcade games are for. But the fact that you can do that in this and still have the advantage of an RPG, basically. I was going to say one of the things that Hades does really well there that you're kind of hinting at, Mark, is that it gives you different beats, right? So you may finish a run and then you go back and you're like, I'm going to go talk to everybody who's got, you know, a marker on them that says I can talk to them. So I'm going to go, you know, talk to Hades. I'm going to go talk to all these different characters. I'm going to see if they have anything new to say. I'm going to like, give them gifts if I found them during the run. And then it's back to the action. So it's not just pure action. It's interspersed with these sort of downbeats of, of socialization and narrative and storytelling. And you even get those during the runs. If you happen upon any of the NPCs during the run, like Sisyphus, you know, for example, you can go in and he has like a really amazing thing about this game is those NPCs. I never exhausted their unique dialogue, right? Like every time I went back to them, it seemed like they had something new to say and they would react to things that other NPCs had told me. And it was like this conversation going on. So it does a really good job of giving you some variation in what you're doing and then letting you get back to the action as well. And it's not something that I've seen in a lot of the games like this. It's worth mentioning too, the appeal of getting in and doing the shooting and dodging and slashing and, and the high octane play. Rogue wasn't like that. And a lot of traditional roguelikes are turn based in the card, the card battlers and things of that nature. There's still that dive in and you're in it. And then when you die, you're dead and the stakes are just as high. But the, obviously the difficulty scales relative to the main style of that particular part of the gameplay. And Supergiant did something that a lot of other rogue style games have tried, but didn't have the, the focus on making a really great dungeon crawler action RPG, but also paying so much attention on um, narrative and story progression that you're just as able to see story progression, whether or not you're succeeding at the game, but also f- seeing that through to the end of the game where it isn't just kind of an afterthought. Well, yeah, let's, let's build in a story that was clearly a primary importance in their design philosophy for the game. And I, a lot of their other games are similar where they, they focus on a couple different game mechanics and they really, they ring those things dry, like Bastion and Transistor and the other games, Pyre. They all take these different elements and really focus in on them. Hades took the roguelike and this 
pretty robust story. And the fact that you can exhaust, eventually exhaust the quips, I'm sure. But they even gamify that. They, they make it so you can see more or less how many you have left. And every single thing you do almost in that game has some sort of dopamine feedback <laughs> thing going on, which further helps its longevity and replayability. Could we talk a little bit about how many ways the narrative ties together with the run-based gameplay? Like thinking about it, I think it is, it is amazing. I'm not sure if a more perfect narrative framework exists for this kind of story. Because firstly, you have the conceit of like Hades, the god of death. So you're immortal. It's fine. There's no death. You just keep going back to the bottom. You've got the structure of the underworld that you can constantly build your way through. But the fact that it's a, a family story. Not, the, not in the sense that there the, is no sex. It is not a family-friendly story. There is. <laughs> it is not a family-friendly story. And I'm sure we'll talk about the downright thirstiness that permeates all the way through this game. Yeah, none of Greek mythology is family-friendly, by the way. So <laughs> Clearly not. The thing I'm getting at is that not only does it make sense at the basic narrative level that you are constantly trying, constantly failing to get away from like the House of Hades, but it's a story about trying to escape from an overbearing father and an overbearing family. And if you have an overbearing family and you try and escape from them, what happens is you just get pulled back in. You have to start again from the beginning. That's just another one of the ways that just the narrative is just most perfect possible way to skin these mechanics. There are so many families, so many daddy issues. The whole game is a Freudian nightmare and I love it. The way that Hades is set up and the, how cleverly the whole thing was designed, it's fascinating to me because you have, you have a, a narrative through line that's kind of, in some sense, linked to this kind of constantly having to re-engage with this dungeon and constantly encountering all these hardships. And the narrative is kind of stacked on top of the gameplay where, where you're seeing the constant, almost futility of the thing that you're trying to do. But at the same time, becoming more and more equipped to be able to handle what it throws at you and this progression of the narrative, the progression of the player and the progression of the character, they're all kind of working in tandem where you don't, you don't really see that. You typically like in a Skyrim, like you, you become fairly decent at the game by running around and killing stuff, but then you're also getting so exponentially strong or stronger as you develop that by the time you reach the end of the game, I mean, you're blowing people off the map where this game, it's it really is challenging throughout. And then another thing I wanted to kind of bring up as an aside, as far as gameplay mechanics are concerned, like a deck builder and Hades, for example, it's kind of similar. Uh, Slay the Spire and Hades are actually kind of similar in that every time you do a run, you have a set of cards that you can play. Each time you encounter something new that you can add to your deck, it's usually tied to some story bit, which it's mind blowing. I, I know why it won so many uh, awards and I like Al put off playing it for so long because I just kept hearing about it and hearing about it. So I usually... I don't play those games until they've kind of settled down and I'm upset that I waited for so long because, I mean, it, it's so easy to get lost and trying to constantly see what's next. See what I, I just ran into Euricides today for the first time. The fact that you can uncover more mechanics that are just as deep as you uncover them, it, it's very impressive. It's theme as mechanic, right? Some Maybe some fancy pants game designer or, or game critic might call it uh, you know the things that it's trying to say about the story and the world and the characters are expressed through mechanics like you are you are subject to the whims of the gods in the 
way that you build and power up your character. You cannot hardly ever escape your parents, you know, as Al mentioned. And it's, it's really very cleanly and well done. So you mentioned Slay the Spire, which is one that I had put off playing until the last minute here because most roguelikes are like 10 bucks, $5, you know, enter the gungeon, all these ones. But Slay the Spire was, you know, a holdout at 25 or something, you know, which is still great compared to your normal $59.99 PS4 game. But I, yeah, just picked it up a couple days ago and just after seeing some reviews because I did not expect to like it so much. And so reflecting on why, Al, you were saying you were more into the, the ones that do not involve reaction time that are not like old style arcade games. So Slay the Spire and FTL. Faster Than Light are the two great examples of that. I also played FTL coming into this. And I'm just not sure what, I mean, it it could just be that, well, any game that has a really good design and a good interface and a good story is going to be enjoyable. But it's not like the three have a whole lot in common other than this sort of sense of permadeath, but yet you unlock things and you get better over time. And there's with Slay the Spire, you're adding new cards. So this is a... I'm fighting things. I have some cards that will do damage on them or give me blocking bonuses. And, and a great thing is that you can see exactly what your opponent is going to do next turn. So like they, the opponent is about to attack me for 15 damage. I will spend my cards blocking myself and you know, that's it or something. In some ways it's diametrically opposed to Hades, which has more of a dark souls. This is very difficult. I'm going to die a bunch of times until I develop some new motor skills. But yet there's still something in common about it. And I don't know if it's just good graphic design and plot. This is where the categorization attempts start to really break down because we tend to categorize things in for various pragmatic reasons. But a roguelike doesn't have to be action oriented. It, it can be turn based. So you end up in this, this scenario where you're having to pull out these threads of connectivity that are there. And that's what's great about game design in general is that you can really just choose a, a, a core design philosophy and just throw a bunch of mechanics at it and see kind of what sticks. Slay the Spire made the deck builder, I think, style kind of launch into the stratosphere. And there are other turn-based roguelikes that are similar, but they're not really action-based. But every time you make a move, turn is exchanged, and then you progress through the dungeon that way. And But as far as categorizing them, it's not necessary that they be action or turn-based or card-based or whatever. Uh, another example of a game that I started recently, it's called Wayward, which is a roguelike survival game where you appear on an island and you have to survive for as long as possible. And once you die, your character's dead, permanently dead. And it's run-based in terms of that. And it's random because the island is random and the loot and the, the way things are generated on the map is effectively procedurally generated. But, you know, that's a that's a survival turn based Minecrafty roguelike like. So as you add mechanics, you can attach it to any old category that you want. But the fundamental mechanics, I think, of the permanent death randomness, I think we can probably hold on to that as foundational conceptual base. And then as you throw in. I'm going to make a house builder roguelike where uh, if you if you build a house and your customer's pissed off, then you lose your business. I mean, whatever the implications are for your death, they have to be, in some sense, permanent or semi-permanent, what we're seeing in like roguelites, where it's a semi-permanent death because you you still persist some you know, power-ups and things of that nature. So, And those core components, I think, really 
show what does hold in common between FTL, Hades, Slave Aspire, and all the rest. And that's that if you set out to design a roguelike and you know that you've got this and run-based gameplay is what you're going for, then you know that you're going to have to give someone another really cool thing about roguelikes, which is very good for all people with busy lives, is that you can get a lot out of them in half-hour sittings. And when you're going out to design one of these things, then presumably you're faced with the challenge, okay, I need something which is going to be replayable for, you know, 80, 90, 200, 4,000 hours, but can also give somebody a satisfying experience in a half hour session. You don't have the Skyrim thing where you're going to spend four hours like looking for something because you know that it's going to give you like four important stat points that are going to make the rest of your 400 hour playthrough really, really sing. Like you need to get something out of this half hour. So maybe the thing which ties all those things together, all those games together is that the style of gameplay, the short sessions, repetitive gameplay makes it necessary for you to identify a few core mechanics and really make them sing, really polish the hell out of them because you know that your player is going to be doing basically the same thing over and over and over again. And like in Hades, it's the mechanics are really simple. As Mark said, it's dash strike, two different attacks move. That's your lot. And the magic is in how well-crafted those basic mechanics are and how much thought has gone into the different ways that the boons can interact and, and the different play styles which become available as you uh, spec out your character in a different way. And it's definitely the same for FTL and Slave Aspire. You've got these basic mechanics which are just honed perfectly with all these lovely little different ways that you can slightly alter the gameplay, which are also designed and, I assume, play-tested. Let's stop for an ad break. No one knows what you're looking for in a doctor better than you, and no one's better at giving you the tools to find the perfect doctor than ZocDoc. The people who created ZocDoc found the major pain points in healthcare, all the things that weren't working, and said, enough, and they made booking a great doctor surprisingly pain-free. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. I have used the app. It's a nice interface. I was looking at eye doctors. You can filter your search, so you're only seeing doctors that take your insurance, that provide the services you want. You can look and see what other actual people think of these doctors, and you can book something right in the app, whether it's an in-person or a video visit. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, including me. I'll definitely turn to this when I next need to find and book a doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash PMP. ZocDoc.com slash PMP. If you have multiple credit card balances each month and are only paying the minimums, barely making a dent in your credit card debt, it can be discouraging. Upstart can help you pay off your existing debt quickly so you can feel like you're finally getting ahead. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score, so rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score in just five minutes, for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. 
pitch FTL to us for a second. So folks that haven't played that. FTL is a sci-fi roguelike where you have to pilot a plucky crew in a dilapidated ship to deliver a message which is going to help save, prevent a war, maybe win a war. It's never entirely clear. Basically, it's sci-fi. It's charming as hell. And every different room, every different room which is a different system, has a randomized encounter, combat or non-combat. And it is punishingly difficult and always an absolute joy. It's charming. It's unfair. But it's also a really beautiful sci-fi exploration game, and that's what really drew me into it. It really captured a kind of Star Trek-y vibe, which I was uh, very attracted to. Star Trek, if every member of that crew was a red shirt and was sure to die at any <laughs> second. So, show of hands, does anybody use auto-fire in FTL? That's the one thing I wasn't sure if you should turn that on or not. It seemed not. No, you have to. I don't remember. Yeah. You, have to, you have to use it wisely. Okay. I just pause like the cat, all the cast in Hades. Pause all the time. <laughs> I was just pausing constantly. Oh, yeah. So even though one could do a quick run, no, this would be a, you know a multi-hour experience probably for a run. You know, unless you just die fast. But I I was playing on easy, so it was uh, at least would last a little longer. I think I played a thousand hours of FTL and, and beaten it twice. Wow. Another thing to piggyback on what um, Al was saying about the punishing mechanics and being able to jump in and jump out and all this is related to, to like the game developers to make a quality game we're seeing now, especially if you look at the rogues likes that are coming out, they're not all AAA graphical powerhouses. Uh, it turns out um, for full immersion and replayability and the things that you need to keep players coming back and playing for a thousand hours is you just need those core fundamental game design mechanics and then the edifice you throw on top of it could be damn near every anything now the the aesthetic appeal of something like hades and ftl and all that stuff that's all very important but with this formula it seems because the potential for uh every time you start a run to be inherently different probably why you do see so many good roguelikes coming from the indie space is because it's just a perfect style of game to express one really great idea I do feel like there's a fascination with the lo-fi, you know, with low-res graphics that can be charming, but I'd rather not. Like, (laughs) Hades looks good, and it would not be better if it looked bad. The accessibility of designing something like this is more ubiquitous, so you are going to get a lot of very bad attempts, or at least poor attempts relative to uh, more fleshed-out games. So, I mean, there there is a possibility, and I've, I've downloaded a number of just bare bone roguelike where, I mean, there's not a whole lot other than you're just moving around a map, trying not to die. Um, that's all that you need. There's just that extra layer of randomness. And every time you do it, it's slightly different that, that feeds on that, that desire for, I don't know if Jamie can probably comment on this much more specifically, but to rerun, to go back into the dungeon, why would we want to continue to do that? And what are the reasons for it? Yeah, I think it comes down to the the game gives you a lot of autonomy. It gives you a lot of choice in how you go about playing it. Or I think really successful rogues are likely to do this. Like, how do you build your party? How do you spec your characters? And then are you making choices? I think it's it's clever that Hades, for example, gives you it doesn't just say here's your upgrade or here's your new ability. It like makes you choose between two different ones. And then in some situations you can really roll the dice and like anger 
the god that you don't choose, which again is very in keeping with Greek mythology, right? Where, you know, if you, if a god felt that they had been spited or offered you a gift and you didn't take it, they might get mad at you. But yeah, choose your weapons, choose the aspects, pick your upgrades as you go through. Every run is different. The procedurally generated nature of, of a lot of at least parts of the runs are, are different every time. And that goes a long ways, especially when that gameplay is really tight and it does exactly what you want it to do when you make the inputs on your controller. We wouldn't want a mechanic like this to be real life. Like we wouldn't want, maybe we would, the eternal recurrence of Nietzsche or whatever. Like <laughs> life is a life is a roguelike. When you die, you can return to the beginning of the dungeon. Typically people like, consistency and routine psychologically to maintain some sense of stability just going to their job they don't want too much randomness at their job you kind of want to know what to expect to get through your day so we defer the this stuff to the video game space which really allows us to constantly like you said constantly engage in this behavior where you make a choice that has consequences and those consequences can be direct and uh, drastic and disaster disastrous or they can be the thing that enabled you to win this particular game and in every turn, you can make an improper choice. I can, I remember off the top of my head, a couple of Hades runs where it's like, man, I chose uh, the health buff instead of this upgrade to whatever. And I didn't quite have enough damage and I didn't beat the boss by one sliver of health. Had I upgraded that thing it would have been 6% more. Therefore he would have died. You have all these things that play themselves out. And that's the appeal. I think of the, of the roguelike formula, like at, at every turn. Should I spoil the, the ending of Hades? Do you want to know or do you not want to know? I don't mind. Yeah, it's worth it. Yeah, it's going to be years before I finish it, so go ahead. Just that you you get to get to the top. You get to uh, see what's on the surface. But then there has to be a reason. It's not that the game is over. It turns out that actually you can't, as somebody who grew up in the underworld, you cannot survive on the surface. So this just adds to the futility that you get up, you get to have a couple lines of dialogue with your mother, and then you die again. and then. After a few times of doing this, then your mother actually is not up there anymore. It's come down like the the family is more or less at peace. And now you're testing the defenses. So the dialogue changes. (laughs) You're still doing the same thing, but for a different reason, you know, insofar as you want to, you could just hang out in your room, but there's really nothing to do. Like it's not surprising either. I mean, the, the narrative bits kind of constantly beat into your head, that sense of futility. So it's not a surprise that you get to the end and it's like, yeah, you're uh. You're here I can't for a reason. If I like that, or I, or I hate it. Well, I mean, compare it to the way that a lot of other games do it, where you beat it and it just says like, "Hey, congratulations, you've beaten the game." Press X to like go back and play a new game plus, or or start another run. It's like really clunky. And what I really liked about what Mark just described in Hades is that it's narratively consistent, right? Like they have a reason for you to, even though you beat the final boss, to go back and do it over and over again. It's kind of, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's irony, but they just spend so much time on, on this development of this narrative and the story. And the whole point of it is to convince you to keep going back into this dungeon. And it's, like you said, it's the mechanic the theme is mechanic through and through all the way to the bottom of this game. You're supposed to hit your head on the ceiling and fall back down. And of course, the whole time you're encountering Sisyphus. So, and of course, all the connections of in Greek mythology, but the Sisyphusian one is primary in this. Maybe he's the, the, the god of, this gameplay design to analogize because yeah i mean you're you get to the end of the dungeon you beat it uh the boulder rolls back down you re-enter the dungeon and the game gives you so many reasons to want to keep doing that 
That's almost why I don't like the uh, the testing the defenses thing. Yeah, because it, it seems like it would be more in keeping with the theme of the game if the only reason was there's nothing else to do, or that's just what your life is. Or Hades says, I mean, that is kind of what know, it this comes is what down you're going to gonna do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. That you can there's there's a meaningless advance in titles which I have not mm-hmm. reached the end of. That I think just you can as you get more darkness is one of the things you collect as you go through. That you can cash it in, and now I'm a a Sigma guard or an alpha guard, you know, that, and it, there's probably ever, ever more titles that even though I've beat, well, for each weapon, there's continual. So I mentioned heat. You turn on these things that make it harder. Some of which I cannot stand, like the ones that make the enemies faster. I just don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> or I feel like it, it becomes too punishing with certain things. And I still like, there's one that makes each boss harder. And the one that makes the final boss harder, the final boss is already quite hard. And I wish there were like a practice room for the final boss because just learning to dodge his attacks, like, well, you only get to this after you've played a half hour and, you know, with your specific build. And so you never get a chance, you know, unless you, even though I've played it so much, I've never gotten a chance, I feel like, to be actually good at that fight. (laughs) And so the extended version of that, I find intolerable. I, where, uh, it sort of adds on like a second hole, makes it basically twice as long or a third again as long in complete darkness. <laughs> so it, it is a bit ridiculous, purposefully so. And I think, you know, I've watched people online. Yeah. So you can see how these later parts of the game, if you just, there's some great online players that will play with crazy amounts of heat and just entirely focused on, we're going to get this one dual boon, you know, this very rare thing and pick the, uh, you can pick certain talismans at the beginning of each area to increase your likelihood of getting a certain thing. So you can go into it with like, I'm going to play an entirely, you know, I just watch one. I want to get so that I can get to the final boss and not move at all. And we'll still beat him because there are these curses that you can set up. Like every time you take damage, then your opponent takes damage. And there's like five different ones. And so you, if you get all of them, and you get the boons that make them go off automatically, <laughs> then like literally this was one of the greatest, you know, and is I will not touch the stick whatsoever during the final boss fight and I will still win. Yeah. Some of those speed runs are amazing to watch and watching those guys are saying like, Oh, please God, please be this boon, please be this boon. And they roll it and they're like, yeah, cause it's given them the perfect build to go on. And they're one step closer to just steamrolling everything and getting a personal best time or something. It's, it's a lot of fun to watch that once you've been through the game yourself. You would think that at some point, a game like Hades would, would reach its kind of logical, like it's, it's end where it becomes the futility is, uh, has worn off on you as a player and you no longer see fit to keep diving back into this dungeon. But gamers, especially like looking at speed runs and things that gamers do to add further constraints to modify the gameplay of existing games. What Hades and other roguelikes have done, they, they've just built those kinds of things into the gameplay design. So you end up having these branching offshoots of all your choices that you're making. Eventually you might reach like old RPGs. You might finally get that last ending that you kept eluding you or something. Eventually you're going to like cap it out in terms of your own personal enjoyment. But I wanted to ask you guys, like, what do you think at some point, I guess my intuition is suggesting that this may not be this may not be the most responsible thing to do as game designers to maybe it is. I, I'm trying to figure out a way to, to word this to make like your game endlessly point. playable. So nobody ever moves on to other games. <laughs> yes. Does your design game design into futility where you end up in a situation where we're just 
pumping out choice making generator machines that you log in and then you make all the choices and there are more choices. There are more. It's like at some point, should there be, should there be an infinitely replayable game or if there was a subscription model on this game? And I think, uh, you were Tyler, a big player of the, what's the, the, the farming simulator one with the, uh, Stardew Valley, Stardew Valley. Yes. Which the guy is constantly right. Still, upgrading things and adding dialogue and you know since i have kind of run out of new dialogue because after you've gotten up to the surface a couple times it actually doesn't let you hang out there anymore like you've exhausted the plot of hanging out there now you just get to the end and it has you know one of probably 50 different endings of and you're killed uh, by snake i guess okay you're dead (laughs) you know we're gonna put you back at the beginning and and that's very and it even sort of announces when you've reached the end of the these are all the possible endings and it's just going to repeat from here. There's some announcement to that effect, you know, of course, very wittily written, but I would love just a constant. I would pay a small amount per month for a constant stream of just assign one developer to just keep adding crap to this and give me a farming simulator so that I have to get to the top and then I can water the plants and then I can, (laughs) you know, just keep introducing more things up on the surface. Yeah, I, I mean, don't know. Really natural DLC for this, which is you just you got fought your way out of Hades, and now you've just got to fight your way up Olympus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That sort of seems in conflict with one of the points we made earlier, where you you pick a few mechanics and you just polish them until they shine. Like if you're if you're bolting stuff onto this, then suddenly you have suboptimal choices, and you have things that are not as fun or not as well implemented. That seems inevitable, right? But if you have additional levels, like add a whole new realm as part of an expansion pack or a subscription service or or something like that, then now we're talking. That's what's wrong with games as a service, though. Or like that, what the problem with the games as a service model is that it discourages or provides a disincentive for developers to focus on core mechanics or to have one really simple, beautiful idea that you can just play over and over again. I often think about this, the fact that FTL, I mean, Hades gets added to this list now, but FTL, Hades, like Cities Skylines is another one. There's like five or six games that are most of my, RimWorld is another great. Very nice. Like um, premium games, as in games that you just pay for once. And those six or seven games take up the vast majority of my gaming time. I just spent 50 quid on uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus, and I'm having a great time with it. But that cost the same, that one game cost the same as four of those other ones, which collectively I've put thousands of hours into. And, you know, I know I don't want to discourage the idea that game developers should be happy with putting out games which are not infinitely replayable, just like replayable enough. Once you design the core mechanics and whatever engine you decide to use and whatever assets you decide to use, if you release that as a game of service product, you're kind of stuck designing within the framework that you've created. So starting a new game, having inherently new design mechanics, what makes roguelikes cool is you have these foundational elements that you can bolt things upon. So Jamie, you hadn't made a pitch to us. I know you'd mentioned you had in your list Dead Cells, which is one I tried out, which is one of those lower resolution graphics. I don't know. It didn't particularly grab me. Do you want to make a pitch for that? Or is there another one? Yeah, I mean, Dead Cells looks, it's kind of pixelated and kind of has that retro look to it, but 
it's another example of where the moment to moment, the movement, the attacking, the deploying of, of abilities and so forth is just so incredibly well polished and it just feels so much better than it looks. Um, although I think some people kind of dig the style of how it looks, but you know, just like traversing around levels and attacking and how fluid everything is, uh, is incredible. And it, it leans into the roguelike formula as well, where you get to build up things and collect things and unlock weapons through runs each time you go back to the beginning. Does everybody play Hades on a controller here or does anybody a keyboard? Keyboard and mouse. Wow, you're a yeah, keyboard I play mouse. play it on a controller. My daughter played it on keyboard and mouse as well for some reason. I started it on keyboard and mouse just because I didn't have a controller on my PC at the time. And then I made the jump and I was so much happier. And it was the same thing with Binding of Isaac, which is actually the original is not designed for use with controller. So you have to like install some other software to use a controller at all. And I just, uh, especially on a laptop, the keyboard ASDW is not optimal. Is you know very, very much trying to give me some sort of carpal tunnel or something doing, doing that kind of thing. In a way that controller, I'll say I had numb thumbs from playing too much on the controller. So maybe it's a, if you overplay in any style, it's going to be bad. But uh, I don't know. I find the keyboard is easier to get your hands in the wrong place. I don't know. Also was having, it was issues with the controller. This is in the middle of a big fight. And then you hit like what the middle button or one of the info buttons. And then suddenly there's like a pop-up screen, but there's still action going on. It's like. Something with this good flow to it, when anything disrupts that flow, it is is absolutely maddening. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for weighing in on this. I guess, can we go around? Is there one other either last thought or another recommendation or some element that you feel like we we have not hit well enough yet here? Al, do you want to start us in wrapping this up? I'm going to pitch for FTL again. I think anyone who likes any kind of sci-fi and anyone who's into roguelikes as a genre is no reason not to play it. And it's also super cheap these days by the same developers. Is a game called Into the Breach, which is incredibly well-designed. And in theory, is a game I should love, but it is just too damn hard for me. So if you are smarter than me and enjoy all those things too, then play Into the Breach. All right, Jamie, anything else? Yeah, I could toss out one other recommendation that breaks some of the rules that we've talked about a little bit is Darkest Dungeon. It's an early access. The sequel, Darkest Dungeon 2, is an early access right now, but especially the original, you can go and find. And it's it's very much run-based, right? So you're building this group of adventurers and you're sending them out into these dungeons and other environments. And it's brutal and they will die, but instead of just like one party, you're actually building like a bench and like a pool of adventurers that you can, you know, take like so many on each, on each attempt at a dungeon. And if those die, you know, you go back and you've got like that original pool that you can draw from. And you definitely get into like death spirals where, you know, if you have your A group and they die and you go back to your C or D tier <laughs> groups that you haven't leveled up or done anything with, then you're, you're definitely done with that run. But if you balance it out and then balance out like the different environments that you're going into with different character classes and different trinkets and, and all that sort of stuff, it's an incredibly difficult game to beat. I never did manage to beat the darkest dungeon at the very end of the game, but I put a lot of hours into it and it's just so stylistic and so well done and has so many meaningful, rewarding choices uh, as you go through and play it. It's one that doesn't get lumped in with roguelikes as much, probably, but I think it qualifies. You know, I agree. 
I was briefly addicted to that on iOS, which is probably not a good way to experience it. I don't know. On like a, a phone? Yeah. On a tablet. On a tablet. Yeah, a tablet might be okay. But yeah, probably better with a, a mouse. It is not reaction time specific. It is just mm-hmm. like no, it's touch the guy that you want to attack. And, you know, so there's nothing that should prevent it from being awesome. And I did enjoy it, but it definitely had like a sharp ending point for me, you know, and it wasn't that because I had finished it. It just was like, I, maybe that's just me and iOS games that I'm just, I'm done with that now. But yes, we're probably worth turning back to. We did not mention when I originally played uh, Hades and then it was recommended to me to play Curse of the Dead Gods, which is another one that has very, seems to have very good flow and very good graphics and an interesting mechanic. I just haven't played it enough to actually really be into it, but it definitely, you know, it seems to be very well designed and have good sound and good feel to it. And just like Darkest Dungeon, it made me think of this, like the character sort of goes more and more insane or, you know, the further you get in, it it develops. There are bad, you get curses as you go, which is, I guess, a Slay the Spire thing sometimes as well that you can, like, I'm going to play the rest of the game confused. (laughs) Okay. Maybe that'll be a good idea. I, it's worth trying. I don't know. At this point with Curse of the Dead Gods, it was merely frustrating for me. So I suppose it is a thing that is often recommended to folks who like Hades, but I'm not sold on it yet. Tyler, did you have a, a last recommendation? I'm going to say Risk of Rain 2 is probably the, the one that um, surprised me the most. It's pretty punishing. It's hard, but it's, it's a third-person shooter. Roaming FPS tower defense kind of thing where it's run based. Once you die, you have to start over. You have different characters. I'm not so sure if there are any progression between runs yet. Um, but what I'm gathering is you unlock different characters and you can get better with their, with their particular loadouts. Um, but it's very snappy, very visceral. It's fun to land the killing blows and things of that nature. And, you know, it has that, that randomness to it. So if you like fast paced, shooter style stuff it's not top down it's it's a 3d world so you know it's a less it's less retro like than the other ones but definitely give it a shot it's a lot of fun and hard all right well thanks listeners for sticking around here maybe if anybody that has a little more time to stick around we can we can get into really geeky details about 80 strategy for at least a few minutes so yes folks can get that at patreon.com slash pretty much pop thanks so long take care Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com slash audio. That's carshield.com slash audio.